Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Have you ever had someone sin against you and you had to stand by helplessly and just watch it happen? Whenever this happens, the only thing that seems to bring us comfort is the promise in Scripture that God will punish them for it. We're hurt, and we want other people to hurt too. But is that how God looks at the situation? Today we're going to study about how Jesus responds to sin. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, because this message is entitled, Completely Exposed. Have you ever had your sin exposed? And nobody likes having their sin exposed. That's one thing we all have in common. Well, if nobody likes having their sin exposed, why then do we find another person's sin being exposed so enjoyable? Like it or not, scandals make good news. Recently, I watched a documentary about how Volkswagen was prosecuted for false advertising. Um, they ran ads for years saying that they had created a clean diesel, but in reality, they just figured out a way to cheat the emissions test. When tested more rigorously, it was discovered that their many, many of their vehicles were 80 times over the legal emissions regulations. They tried to cheat, and somebody caught them, and they had to pay for it. And I have to admit, as I, I watched the documentary... I kind of enjoyed it. I think it's, you know, when we see major scandals, if they're ever exposed on TV, everybody tunes in. I think this is true for the Watergate scandal and the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the Benghazi email scandal and the Edward Snowden NSA scandal, and the list just goes on and on and on. Well, if nobody likes having their sin exposed, if that's something we would avoid like the plague, Why do we tend to enjoy seeing other people when they are exposed? Why is that so satisfying for us? Well, I think it's because when we feel like we've been sinned against, we want justice. We want retribution. Because we're created in the image of God, anytime there is a sin against us, we want everything to be made right through justice. And I think it can even be a little worse than that. Sometimes it's just enjoyable for us to watch other people to get what's coming to them. So when we feel cheated or we feel robbed or lied to or sinned against in some other way, there's something in us that demands that justice be served. And the idea that God will punish is something that we often like to daydream about. For example, um, I was robbed one time and I couldn't prove who did it. I'm pretty sure I knew who did it uh, and I had reason to believe why they did it, but I just couldn't prove it. And because I couldn't prove it, I felt pretty helpless. And let me just interject something here. Because I felt helpless, I turned over to God. Um, All the situation, I just turned it over to him. But if I wasn't feeling helpless, I probably wouldn't have turned it over to God. If I could have proved who did it, I'd have gone that route. I went to God because of Romans 12, 9, which says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Because I couldn't prove who did it, I'm just like, well, God's going to get them, right? And when you've been sinned against and you feel helpless, you really read into that verse and you really almost enjoy it when you're like, yeah, God, get him, get him. Yet consider this for a moment. Somebody, somewhere, has said the same thing about you. You know, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't recognize that we too had sinned against people. Maybe those people we sinned against also felt helpless in some way, and they daydreamed about God giving us what we deserved. Again, it's not really a fun thought to think about when it's us who's getting exposed and punished. 
Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that we often refer to when we've been exposed. Unfortunately, however, when we talk about this passage, we most, most commonly take it out of context. Today we're going to look at um, the, the, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus, found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Before we jump into that, though, I think that there are a few, a few things that we should recognize. For example, in your Bibles, you likely have one of two things. Either the passage that we're going to study, John 8, 1 through 11, it, it, it's a footnote. It's not even in your Bible. It's just in a footnote. Or it has brackets around it. My Bible has a line above this passage and a line below with a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8 through 11, or through 8, 11. And, and what that footnote is explaining is that the earliest copies of Scripture that we have, they can't find these words written down. And, and if, if you were to study about this passage, you would likely find out that it's believed that this passage wasn't added until the 4th century A.D., which means that many scholars don't believe that this passage is actually the authoritative Word of God, and it interrupts John's train of thought. Somebody just added it on later. They don't think that John wrote it. And, and you know, while it, there's a lot of questions about it, and, you know, some people think that it belongs in there, some people don't, I really believe this is an academic debate, which I, of course, have my own opinions about. But there are several reasons why I want to study this passage of Scripture, even if it's highly debated uh, whether it actually should be in our Bibles or not. One reason I want to study it is because many of the prominent early church leaders acknowledged that this event, at least by verbal tradition, really happened. In other words, this story was passed down from generation to generation orally, and it was widely believed that this is something that Jesus actually did. And whenever I read this passage of Scripture, I, I think it sure sounds like Jesus. But another reason I want to study it is because the oldest copy of John that we have is Papyrus 66. It's a copy of a copy. There's nothing that says that whoever copied John's letter between the time period in question didn't exclude this part um, because they didn't like it. It is possible that John originally wrote this, and um, so it was taken out, and then, you know, if, if men had the original later letter on, uh, letter later on, that they would say, well, this is missing. Well, um, I, I think we, whatever we believe about this, is we don't need to be deceived. Whether this passage was, you know, it was included in the fourth century, but it wasn't just one guy in a back room somewhere that decided to copy it in. Entire councils of men traveled from all over and debated this passage for decades before finally concluded that God wanted it to be included in the, in the Gospel of John. Now, I'm of the opinion that John did write it and, and that it was you know in the original Gospel, and, and I'm going to make an attempt to show you why. Again, that's not what's important, um, even if it wasn't. I do believe that there's something that we can glean from it because it's not unlike the nature of Christ, nor is it outside the depravity of man. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a second. But today we're going to study John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to attempt to discover what we should do when, when, when our sin is exposed. So let's read John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm actually going to start in, in chapter 7, verse 53. It says, Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and Jesus, and said to Jesus, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who were heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now, and I just ask God that you just reveal yourself through this passage of Scripture. And Father, um, whether it was authentically in there or not, Father, I believe that there is something that we can learn about you. And so, God, I just ask that you just show us what that is and help us, Father, to be more like your son, Jesus. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's some points I want to make about this passage. First and foremost, I want, I want to show that God's law exposes our sin. Now, many people have used this passage to suggest that sinning should be excused, uh, which I, in my arrogance, have done before. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, we say things like, hey, don't you dare point out my sin. Jesus once said, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. And I think that's our way of excusing our sin and maybe even turning the tables on our accusers. You see, we love this passage because we feel as if we get to get away with our sin and we get to shift the heat on someone else. And when we typically read this passage, we feel sorry for the woman who's caught in the act of adultery and we hiss at the Pharisees who caught her. However, we should recognize that the Pharisees were doing what God's law required them to. In other words, they caught this woman in the act of adultery because God had given them a baseline of what sin actually is. And that's what the leaders in the Jewish nation were required to do. Now, I do want to point out a couple of things before we go much deeper. The previous chapter says that while each of the Pharisees and chief priests went home, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I believe this is a significant location for two reasons. Number one... It, it sets up the story that is about to occur because Jesus actually goes, the Mount of Olives, is a, it, it, he goes to a cemetery. That's what that is. Jesus purposely went to a place where he was surrounded by where mankind ends up before he went and deal, dealt with the Pharisees and the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. In other words, we should live with the constant reminder that death is certain. If we can do that, we will recognize that our time on earth is limited, and we should base our decision-making through that filter. So first, it was a cemetery, and Jesus kept that in mind. You know, this is where all a man is going to end up. But also, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus later ascends into heaven. So this is a significant, you know, this is a, a, a location of victory, not defeat. Death tried to hold him, but it was unable to. Jesus was looking towards not only his future, but the future of those who believed in him as well. So another thing I want to recognize is that it says in verse 2, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, um, we've been talking about the Feast of Tabernacles for the last couple of weeks. And this is one of those reasons why I really believe that this passage is, it, it belongs here. That um, if you're familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, it's an eight-day event. However, the first seven days are separated from the eighth day. 
uh, on the seventh day, we talked about last week how that is considered the greatest day because of all the celebrating for the provision of God. The eighth day is set up to be a day of rest where everyone gathers in the temple. So here you see this exact same thing happening on what very likely could be, I mean, if you follow John's timeline, is the eighth day. People gather in the temple. And, and that's why I believe that John could have, been one of the, could have been the original author of this passage because the people gather and Jesus sits down and teaches them. Well, in verse 3 it says, The leaders, uh, teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus while he was teaching. And they have her stand before everyone. Now imagine just for a minute that you're a person in the crowd, and you're listening to Jesus teach, and a group rudely interrupts him and brings a woman in and says, Yeah, we caught her in the act, Jesus. Now what do we do with her? Let me put it this way. What if while I was trying to preach, somebody yanked my wife Aaron up on the stage while I was preaching and said, All right, John, we caught your wife stealing money out of the offering plate. Now what do you say we do with her? Uh, you know, I mean, would you stick around to see some see something like that? Would you Would you want to be there to see what happened, how that panned out? Of course you would, because it's entertaining. There's something in us that wants to see how this is going to go. She was caught red-handed. So what are we going to do about it? Well, everyone who's yawning at a boring message suddenly would be sitting up with eyes wide open just to see what would happen. Well, if Aaron was guilty, if my wife was guilty, which she's not, I've talked to her about this. Matter of fact, when I went over this message with her. I said, hey, you never done that, right? She's like, no. I'm like, okay, good. Well, I can accuse you of that. You know, what if, what if that were true, though? What if she had taken money out of the offering plate and somebody brought her up on stage and said, yeah, we caught her doing it? What would she want to do? I think she'd want to do the same thing that all of us would want to do when we're exposed. She would want to get out of there as quickly as possible and never come back. Well, keep in mind that it wasn't the, Fer- the Pharisees that identified this sin. You know, we can hiss at the Pharisees, and I think if we're going to hiss at the Pharisees, it, it should have been because of their agenda, not because they brought this woman forward. It-, it wasn't the Pharisees who identified the sin. It was God's law that identified the sin. We don't need to forget that the woman that was caught in the act of adultery was guilty. She did it. She had broken God's law, and not just some man-made addition to God's law. She broke one of the big ten. She broke the commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, another thing you should consider is that she likely did it thinking that she was going to get away with it. Probably she got away with it all that time. This is probably going on for years. Have you ever studied about the sexual misconduct of the Romans? I mean, the Romans lived lifestyles that was the equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah. Probably worse. This woman likely knew that her people could catch her, but there's nothing that was going to happen to her. Remember, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't execute someone. They had to go to, to the Roman official to, to, to accomplish that. Do you think that if they took him before Pontius Pilate and said, hey, we caught her committing adultery, that he'd been like, well, I guess we're going to have to kill her? No, because if that's the case, well, then tons of Romans are going to be in here. And we're going to have to execute all of them too. If they brought him to Pontius Pilate, he'd been like, so? So what? So she probably had a lifestyle of committing adultery because she got away with it for all that time. Whatever the reason, the men who exposed this woman were doing what the law of Moses required. They weren't interested, though, in carrying out justice. If you notice, there's not a man who was brought forward with this woman. Everybody knows it takes two to tango, so where's the man? 
Now, due to the suspicious circumstances of this event, it's pretty clear that these men very likely sprang a trap for this woman, who was likely very predictable, so that they could set a trap for Jesus. In other words, they used this woman to trap Jesus. And Jesus said, if he had said to him, let her go, well, then they would have accused him of breaking the law of Moses, which says in Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If Jesus had simply said, well, do what the law requires, they would have gone before Pontius Pilate and said, Jesus told us to broke your Roman law and carry out an execution without your permission. See, they thought they had Jesus trapped, which is exactly what it confirms in John 8, 6. But as verse 6 continues, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What was Jesus doing? You know, why, why, when they, they put in such a serious situa- situation, they made a serious accusation in front of him, in front of a huge crowd of people, would Jesus just start drawing in the dirt? Well, there's a theory I like, and we're going to get into that in just a second. I want to read verse 7. He says, When they kept questioning him, he straightened up to them and said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus said these words to show us a very uncomfortable truth, and that is that God's law condemns us all. Now, After Jesus said these words, it says in verse 8 that he bends down again and he continues to draw in the dirt. What was he writing? What was he drawing? I mean, like, why, Jesus? Well, this is a theory that I like. Maybe you've heard this before. I think when Jesus was drawing in the dirt, he was likely writing the sins of the woman's accusers. The reason why this theory is popular is because Jesus continues to write in the dirt, and the older men start to leave first, and then the younger men follow. Now, Jesus could have written out their sin in chronological order, and when their sin was exposed, they, like this woman caught in the act of adultery, couldn't wait to get out of there when their sin was exposed. But in truth, we don't really know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. We know whatever it was, it seemed to have an effect that rang true with his words when he said, let he who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So several commentaries I've studied suggest that in the original Greek, when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, that he was referring to the same sin. In other words, if you guys haven't committed adultery, then you can execute her. Which would be an incredible turn of events if he started writing the times, maybe the names of the people they committed adultery with. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. But I, I still believe that's, that's, that's pretty unlikely that all of these men would have committed adultery. Unless maybe Jesus wrote down you know, what he says in the book of Matthew uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, that he who looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. I don't know. When you study the law, you can see that things get even a little bit more complicated, though. When someone who was caught in sin uh, is is caught, um, that witness who caught them would be the first one to throw the stone at them to execute him. But in order to do that, in order to throw the first stone, they must be completely innocent of the sin that is exposed. So maybe Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I know you're trying to scheme to trap me. That's the only reason you brought this woman forward. See, Jesus answered the Pharisees without breaking God's law. And this is another reason why I believe that this is an authentic story. Jesus' answer to their question was masterful. What should we do? Well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. 
Now, he, he didn't break God's law in his answer, nor did he break the law of the Romans. With the finesse that only Jesus has, he turned the tables on the accusers, and he also carried out the law. See, this passage is somewhat of a paradox. We cannot use this passage to ignore God's law or excuse it in any way. And many people think that this passage was just Jesus forgiving and excusing sin. They think it means that Jesus said, you know, I know that she sinned, but it's cool. Because it's not cool. That's not what's going on. It's not cool. It's not okay. Jesus wasn't issuing out forgiveness here. He wasn't saying, oh, well, you know, I knew about it and I forgave her when she did it. If that's the case, he would have said, she's forgiven. Let her go. No, look at what Jesus actually said. When looking at this woman, when looking at her accusers, Jesus said the person without sin should stone her. Did you read that right, John? Well, wait a minute. Jesus' answer unveils another important truth about God's law, and that is that when God's law is broken, it demands punishment. Jesus told these men that this woman should be put to death because of her sin. This verse, when taken in its proper context, shouldn't bring us comfort. And it shouldn't make us feel good about the sins that we committed or even ignore them. It should make us be afraid. Jesus is not a pushover when it comes to sin. Sin needs to be punished. And Jesus upheld that truth. The turning point is when we realize that there was only one person who was present who could have delivered the punishment. And it even might even give us a little goosebump a little bit as to why he didn't. Think about that. Why didn't he? Jesus was the only one who could have carried out that execution. But for some reason, he wasn't interested in throwing stones. In verse 10, Jesus straightens up and asks this woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she responds, No one, sir. And so Jesus responds back, Then I tell you, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And I think this is where we often misinterpret Jesus' intentions. John uh, 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this verse doesn't mean that Jesus is saying, Go sin it up, everybody. This verse is yet another proof that the sin of man, uh, the, the punishment for the sin of man, is satisfied upon Christ's sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus wasn't saying, Get out there and sin and don't let anybody call you on it. Don't take that. He was was saying, Woman, I, I will take this sin upon myself as well. I will take your punishment. Now, picture just for a minute Jesus carrying the cross from where he was tried to Golgotha. I mean, he's just struggling to stay up at this point. He's beaten almost beyond recognition. His legs are buckling. His muscles are aching. He's shaking just trying to carry the weight of not only the cross, but our sin as well. Do you honestly think that that's a time when Jesus is going to look at us and say, Hey, man! It's cool. I've got your sin taken care of, so go do whatever you want to do. I've got this. I mean, do you think this is where Jesus would have cheerfully said, Hey, remember, only he who is without sin can cast the first stone at you, so go out there and live however you want. Make no mistake, Jesus took our sin. 
But see, that shouldn't make us feel good and free to sin. Shouldn't feel good about it. That should break our hearts. Jesus came that we might be given a clean slate. He took our sin upon himself so that that we could be made right with God. And, you you know, I think this is the final reason really why I believe John, that this this passage was originally in here. Um, Eight is a special number in the Bible. The eighth day is, is, uh, you know, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles is a significant day. Eight is the number of a new beginning. The eighth day of the week is the first day of a new week. Um, the eighth day in Scripture is a day when the uh, baby boy child uh, was considered clean from all the uncleanliness of childbirth, and, and then they are circumcised. When a person was in debt, they could only be in debt for seven years, and on the beginning of the eighth year, they would be forgiven their debt, and they would be given a new beginning. And when Jesus healed a man of leprosy, he was commanded to go before the temple, and on the eighth day, he would be considered clean. On the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus had a woman brought before him who had been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus, knowing that he would go to the cross, took her sin upon himself by saying, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, she had received a new beginning. Do you understand? Because Jesus went to the cross we can stand completely exposed before God without fear of condemnation. Jesus gave up his life as a sin offering for the, for the offenses that we have committed against God and others. And Romans 8, 1-2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God does not take pleasure and punishing our sin. But his law demands that when we break his law, that there must be punishment for it. Now, I've often heard people say that this story doesn't contribute anything to the nature of God, but instead confuses us on the nature of how God looks of sin. But I think the opposite of true. I think that it's true. This passage shows us the incredible gift of being able to stand before God and have our sins exposed because we can know that if we are in Christ, that he is for us and he's not against us. That we too can invite God into our lives and expose uh, our sin before him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 134, 23-24, Search me, God, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because of Jesus, we can stand before God completely exposed without fear of being destroyed like we deserve. God's provision of sending his son is proof that he takes no pleasure in punishing our sin. He didn't cast stones when he could have. Now keep that in mind. As as we think about the sins that we committed in our lives, we are afraid to be exposed. We're afraid of that embarrassment. We're afraid of being uh, exposed to the world, maybe exposed to the church. That's a scary thought for us. And, and I think we just have to consider th- this one last point, and that is, is that God takes no pleasure in exposing our sin. God takes no pleasure in punishing our sin. If he took pleasure in it, 
He wouldn't have sent his son to take our punishment for us. So if God takes no pleasure in it, then maybe we ought to reconsider what's going on in us if we take pleasure in someone else being punished. Now there's something in us, like I said, that demands justice. But we shouldn't be happy about it. We should mourn sin. We should mourn the consequences of sin. And when people are affected in such a way that they, 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 they go throughout this, this, this cycle of, of sin and sinning against other people, and they're exposed, they're caught, and then they're punished. That shouldn't make us feel good. That should make us mourn. The only thing that should make us feel good about this is that that is what we deserve. That is who we are. That is what we deserve in Christ, to be exposed and humiliated and destroyed. But because of who Jesus is, he came and he took our punishment upon himself. That when we deserve to have stones thrown at us, we instead receive mercy and grace. When we deserved to be destroyed, we instead received eternal life. Just think about that. If God doesn't take pleasure in punishing our sin, maybe we shouldn't take pleasure when others are punished either. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.